see you guys this morning on this fine Daylight Savings Time Sunday, your favorite Sunday of the year, I'm sure. We're all coming in completely sleep deprived, probably need one more cup of coffee. And in God's providence, we're actually gonna dive into a passage of scripture this morning where we encounter the ornery, seemingly sleep deprived, grumbling Pharisees, and also where Jesus reveals himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of true rest. So God in his providence surely has something for us there. In addition to that, I managed to, I think, maybe sprain my thumb last night as we dive into the story of a man with a withered hand, and so I'm gonna stop praying for God to give me a feeling sense of the things I preach, because apparently that's dangerous. Um, If you have a Bible, though, I will invite you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter six. We'll be in the first 11 verses uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, everything will be up on the screen behind me as we're working our way through this passage, so feel free to track with what's up there on the screen as we work our way through. Let me go ahead and pray for us because even though it's 11 verses, there's a good bit of biblical ground to cover. We're gonna work our way back to creation and through the fall and on into the redemption that comes in Jesus and forward looking to the consummation of all things when he returns. So the whole Bible basically in 11 verses. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this morning, perhaps feeling a little more exhausted than we typically would running on less sleep perhaps for many of us, coming in in what feels like weakness on our parts. And maybe that's a good thing, Lord, that you would bring us a little lower, that we might see that without you, we will walk away in something of a daze, having gotten nothing out of our time in the scriptures together, if it's up to our fickle hearts to grab hold of anything. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move, that you would work during our time together. Uh, I pray that that you would... uh, Give me a feeling sense of the things I preach, even if it means sprained thumbs, Lord, because that's good for me, that's good for the church. And um, God, I pray that for all of us that, uh, that we would meet you, that you would meet us in the scriptures, Lord, that this would not be uh, just some sort of rote exercise in learning more about the theology of the Sabbath or the theology of healing or, or any other chapter of the systematic theology book, Lord, but that more than that, that we would have an encounter with the living God and that it would transform the way that we abide in you, Jesus, that we walk in union with you. So would you do that great work, Holy Spirit, in our lives, in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, I pray, amen. So last week I mentioned that we're gonna see two themes continue to emerge as we work our way through Luke's gospel account, namely the growing controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders on the one hand, and the growing sense of hope and joy uh, in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus. You're gonna see both. Remember, the the scribes and the Pharisees were were seen as models of virtue. The word Pharisee itself meaning separatist. They had established this code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures, more rigid even than the law of Moses. And we'll see some of that this morning. Referred to by Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible as the extra super holy people so that most people believe that they would never be as righteous as the scribes and Pharisees. Thought they could never live up to that standard. Some of the more militant Pharisees, even going so far as to use violence to establish and maintain strict, intensified observance of the law, of the Jewish law, believing that that would establish the right conditions for God to make good on his promises. And along comes Jesus, speaking with an authority all his own, drawing large crowds and talking about the kingdom of God in a very different way than the scribes and Pharisees had been talking about the kingdom of God. 
declaring that he has the power to forgive sins, which only God can do. Eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, offering God's kingdom to seemingly all the wrong people so that the Pharisees come out of the cracks and crevices of society to see what's going on, to see for themselves what this Jesus is up to, wondering whether he's come to overthrow the law, having themselves created new laws that God never imposed upon his people, a fence within the fence, so to speak. All the while leveraging spiritual disciplines going back to last week as a means of self-justification, as a rung-climbing means of self-glory, unable to see their greatest need, perceiving themselves to be spiritually healthy in the eyes of God. Because self-righteousness, again, last week, always seems to be a blind spot for the self-righteous. Unwilling to accept Jesus' diagnosis of the sickness of their, of their own hearts, refusing to fall at his feet in neediness and desperation for the gospel cure. Suspicious of joy on the outside looking in, scandalized by the thought of a seat at the table of forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus is offering. Okay, It's, it's with those things in mind that Luke tells us, chapter six, verse one, on a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. All right, this is, this is the first of two back-to-back teachings on the Sabbath, two episodes that Luke includes, not so that, that we'll wrestle with whether or not we keep the Sabbath. That's, that's not the, the point of emphasis this morning, okay? Don't, don't be looking for that. That's not what Luke is trying to drive at here. Rather, he includes these two back-to-back episodes so that we'll wrestle with our notions of who Jesus is on the basis of how he and his disciples interact with the Sabbath. At the same time, I think it helps to have some sort of basic theology of the Sabbath in diving into a passage like this. And so I wanna take us back. You, you may have read along the way, very famous passage in famously bringing forth uh, in speech the 10 commandments, God said to Moses, Exodus chapter 20, verses eight through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. To be holy is to to be set apart, to be different. So that God says that one day out of seven is to be different from the rest. It's to be different in that his people shall not labor. The word Sabbath meaning cease or rest. A ceasing, a resting rooted in the story of creation, the Lord says, as he established a rhythm of work and rest in the very beginning. We see that in Genesis chapter two, verses one and two, where we're told the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. To be sure, God didn't rest because the the creation of the universe involved some sort of heavy lifting on his part. Rather, it was God's way of experiencing satisfaction in his work, among other things, a a rhythm that that God intended for his people, having created them in his very image. But lest we think that the theology of the Sabbath is solely rooted in the story of creation, the parallel account of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter five says this, 
Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, in light of the redemption that was brought about from Egypt, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You see that? In in the Deuteronomy 5 parallel account of the 10 commandments, it doesn't say anything about God having created the heavens and the earth in six days and resting on the seventh. No, this is redemption language. Remember Israel's story. It was one of great enslavement as they labored in the, the baking sun of the Egyptian desert for over 400 years. That is until God freed them in that famous story that we call the Exodus. It's in the wake of their newfound freedom that God established a command to rest. God is essentially saying, in the land of Egypt, you never got to stop working. Now that I've set you free, you can incorporate a rhythm of ceasing, a rhythm of resting in your life. Right? How incredibly refreshing it must have been to, to hear those words after all those years of backbreaking labor. God commands his people to Sabbath with one day out of seven different from the rest, rooted in God's work of both creation and redemption, made in his image, creation, no longer in bondage, redemption. Coming out of enslavement in Egypt, you would think it would have been easy to receive that gift to be enjoyed, right? But instead, what God intended to be a beautiful gift became an enslaving playbook over time as the people began to create that fence within the fence. In fact, and this is crazy to think, although we still do it, in the realm of work, the Jewish people established 39 major categories of labor that were forbidden on the Sabbath with hundreds of subcategories underneath those 39 major categories. And not only were certain acts forbidden, but also anything resembling a forbidden act or anything that could be confused with a forbidden act. That's the world Jesus entered into, the, the cultural and religious backdrop of first century Galilee as he and his, his motley crew of followers find themselves out among the grain fields, plucking and eating from the heads of grain on the Sabbath. Verse two, Luke says, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And we know Deuteronomy 23, according to Old Testament law, that travelers were in fact permitted to eat from someone's grain field. That was okay to do as long as, You didn't attempt to harvest or carry off any of the grain as long as you didn't attempt to steal from the farmer, so to speak. But the Pharisees didn't see it that way as the self-appointed Sabbath police, to use the the language of one commentator, so that their objection, it's not actually with with plucking grain itself, but rather with the action taking place on the Sabbath. They saw the plucking of grain as a, a form of reaping and the rubbing of grain between a person's fingers as a form of threshing two of those 39 man-made categories of forbidden work on the Sabbath. You ever ever meet these people? They nitpick everything. They create rules for the rules. And above and beyond that, they find disturbing joy in policing everyone else according to their self-created rule book. Luke goes on to say, Jesus answered them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? 
how he entered the house of God, the temple, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Right, what, what Jesus says here is incredibly fascinating. Right? He could have simply said, what we're doing doesn't go against God's law. It goes against your legalistic man-made set of rules. But that's not what he says. Jesus responds to the accusation of the Pharisees by referencing an Old Testament story about King David, one that, that doesn't present a perfect one-for-one -one correlation of circumstances, meaning that Jesus is not out to establish some sort of legal precedent here for what he and his disciples are doing. Rather, his aim is to get at the heart of the why and the who behind the why. And so he references this story that took place when David was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill David because he was God's chosen king to replace Saul. David having been anointed and proclaimed to be king by Samuel as a young boy, though Saul was still positioned on the throne at the time, awaiting the day David was when his kingship would be formally recognized, leading his band of, of loyal followers who found themselves hungry and in need. And on this particular occasion, David did something that went against the rules and expectations of society as he entered the house of God and took the bread of the presence the consecrated bread, which only the priests were allowed to eat, believing that, that he had the right to do so as the Lord's anointed king, the Lord's anointed one. That's the story Jesus chooses to tell in response to the accusations of the Pharisees on this particular Sabbath day. As he, think about this, stands in the grain fields with his own band of loyal followers who too are hungry and in need, having received, like David, his own proper anointing and coronation as heaven's priest king in the ceremony of his baptism in the wilderness, being chased around like David by those opposed to God's kingdom agenda, in Jesus's case, the Pharisees, awaiting the day, like David, when his own kingship would be formally recognized, plucking grain because, like David, Jesus believes he has the right to do so, as do those associated with him which is why Luke tells us, verse five, and this is key in this passage. And Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's quite the identity statement. Don't, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. This is significant. This is as monumental as Jesus saying to the paralytic, I have the authority to forgive your sins. As Jesus here says, I, I established the Sabbath. I gave the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath. The Sabbath, like everything else in the universe, submits to my lordship. Right? David could do what he, he did because he was David, the Lord's anointed king. Who am I, Jesus says? I'm David's lord. I'm David's king. The greater David is here, the coming king of kings and, and lord of lords. That if David had the right to eat the bread of the presence, well, then the greater David has the right to pluck grain on the Sabbath. In Matthew's account of this episode, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, alluding to the fact that not, not only has the greater David arrived, but the fulfillment of all the, the types and shadows revealed in the imagery of the story that Jesus had just shared. The true consecrated bread, the bread of life come down from heaven. The true temple who would soon be destroyed and three days later raised up. The true priest, the mediator between God and man having come to offer the final sacrifice to atone for sins. 
the true king whose good and glorious kingdom shall never end. The Lord of the Sabbath, having come to bring God's true and final rest. In Mark's account of this episode, Jesus says, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God gave the Sabbath for the good of his people, for protection from the idolatry of overwork and self-trust, for joyful remembrance of God and his redemptive work, for soul refreshment and communion and fellowship with the Lord, for looking ahead to the final rest that would be provided in the coming Messiah. See, the Pharisees, they, they were actually more enslaved than their ancestors in Egypt ever were as they stood in the presence of the only one who could truly satisfy their restless souls. So caught up in their own self-created Sabbath laws that they failed to recognize the one who could bring them true Sabbath rest. We see this all the time amidst the landscape of Christian evangelicalism. Luke goes on to tell us in verse six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Luke sees it necessary to give us a second story of Jesus on the Sabbath in order to all the more drive the point home. In this case, the story of a man with some sort of muscular atrophy who had come to listen to Jesus's teaching in the synagogue. Verse seven, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The religious leaders, they didn't have a problem with, with healing on the Sabbath. And in the case in which a person's life was in danger, you could actually lean into that and engage that. It was something that couldn't wait until the following day. It was okay. Of course, that's not the case in this situation, right? This is not a life or death situation. And so the Pharisees and scribes see it as a perfect opportunity for them to, to bring their accusations. Right? Think about this for a second. They're actually waiting for Jesus to be merciful and kind so that they can take him out. They're, they're not interested in Jesus's teaching, nor are they interested in the connection of his miracles to his message. Their, their aim is to trip him up, to catch him doing something that might allow them to get rid of him for good. They're, they're, again, think about this, get this in, in your mind. They're looking for Jesus to turn a withered, atrophied hand into a perfectly healthy hand so that they can not believe in Jesus, but rather reject him. That's crazy, right? That's a perfect example of what's known as confirmation bias, the tendency to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs and theories. It's everywhere in us and around us these days, is it not? As we grab hold of whatever will leave our existing theories and beliefs untouched while rejecting anything and everything else along the way. In this case, very dangerous because nothing less is at stake than the truth of who Jesus is. Verse eight tells us, but Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, to the religious leaders, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus makes no apologies in calling this man to stand before the crowd. The original Greek for the word translated here literally means in the middle. Come and stand in the middle of the room, Jesus says. The Pharisees want a public display or so they think. And so Jesus makes a public example out of them. And he asks, 
Why, why, would, why would matters of healing and flourishing on the Sabbath be a problem for you? Should legalism stand in the way of human need, of mercy? Or you say that this day is for worshiping God, is the hope of your heart that this man's hand would stay withered this day when it could be made free to lift in praise to the God you say you worship? Do you see the irony of it all? The upside down thinking? Jesus not only declares that he's not breaking God's law, but he goes further in declaring that the scribes and Pharisees actually are. That to do nothing is to unlawfully do harm, Jesus says. Or in the words of one commentator, good omitted is evil committed. And as Luke has already made crystal clear, Jesus came to do good, to seek and save the lost. Remember uh, Jesus' reading of the Isaiah scroll going back to chapter four in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth where Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a picture of mercy at the very heart of Jesus' ministry. Matthew's account includes Jesus' reference of Hosea chapter six, verse six, which is where the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or as Jesus says it in his famous Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Pharisees, they were merciless. There's an outworking of their cold, calculated legalism. In contrast, Jesus is the embodiment of mercy and compassion, having taken on flesh in order to, to relieve uh, uh, where there would otherwise be misery. Which is why it makes perfect sense that, that Luke goes on to tell us in verse 10, and after looking around at them all, he said to, to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Of course it was. What an awkward moment. Are you ever... You ever been in a, a prayer circle where the pause was a little too long or asked a question in a, a conversation with someone and sat there for a little longer than you wanted to? This is one of those moments. Jesus gives the religious leaders a chance to respond as he looks around the room in what must have been the most awkward of silences, just staring each of them in the face. You gonna say something? You gonna say something? You gonna say something? And they're all silenced as is always the case when Jesus engages in discussion with them. So Jesus looks at the man, says, these guys have nothing to say. Stretch out your hand. And the man does so in faith, and immediately his atrophied appendage is restored to full health and mobility, now free to lift in worship and praise. Right? It's a picture of salvation. God's rescuing and restoring of lost sinners freeing them to joyfully give him the worship and praise he so freely deserves. Surely, surely this is the moment when, when the light bulbs go off for the Pharisees. God glorifying epiphany. We see it, we see who he is. And they're saved, they're rescued into the family of God forever, right? No, verse 11 tells us, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The, the Greek word for fury, anoios, can also be translated foolishness or madness. 
their hearts filled with maniacal rage. Matthew and Mark include an additional detail in their accounts telling us that the Pharisees discussed how they might destroy Jesus. So that ironically in this moment, think about this, they break the very law that they proclaim to hold so sacred. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, the scribes and Pharisees, they managed to miss the the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules. Most any of us can make it through a typical day without murdering someone, the outside of the cup clean, right? Unrighteous anger rooted in pride, contempt that belittles other people, the inside of the cup, so to speak. Well, that's a different story. Jesus, and we saw this in our Sermon on the Mount series, Jesus goes after the deep root issues in us that that would destroy us otherwise. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. He, He digs beneath the surface level manifestations of the law to its heart level intent. In this case, blowing up the religious paradigm of the extra super holy people setting the stage for for the increased contention and hostility that will eventually lead to the cross. God's greatest act of mercy, by the way, and our only hope of God's true and final rest. I think we have to sit with a a question this morning as we walk away from a passage like this. And it's where, where am I missing the mercy and rest that's freely mine in Jesus Christ? Where am I bound by the enslaving chains of a pharisaical spirit as I stand in the presence of the only one who can truly satisfy my restless soul? How am I living with a withered, atrophied heart when the restoring touch of Jesus is right in front of me? He's the one who rescues lost sinners that they might lift regenerate hands to the praise of his glorious grace. He's the Lord of the Sabbath who offers freedom and rest from sin and striving. He says elsewhere in the gospel accounts, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He invites us according to the author of Hebrews to draw near to his throne of grace that we might receive mercy in our time of need. And so I I just invite you to do that as we move forward into a time of worship through song invite you to come to Jesus and declare where you need rest, where you've been striving, where where you've been living in in the land of the uh, pharisaical spirit, so to speak, and missing Jesus in all of it, where you've missed his mercy along the way in the name of some sort of self-created, insulated rule book, playbook, and that you would experience what he offers freely and fully this morning, that you would walk away with true re- more rest than, than the next cup of coffee can give you on Daylight Savings Time Sunday. Like that we would walk away with, with some Jesus rest as we leave this place and some Jesus mercy. We'll also partake of the Lord's Supper together. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. There are cups on the back table. If you missed it on your way in, you're welcome to go grab one of those. Over the last couple of songs, whenever you're ready to partake of the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, I wanna give you space to do that on your own time throughout the course of the remainder of this service. As you get ready to partake of those elements though, just 
just pause for a moment and, and acknowledge the fact that apart from his broken body and shed blood, there is no rest. We're still left in a place of restlessness and hopelessness. Apart from his broken body and shed blood, there is no mercy. We're still left without hope and without mercy. But because of who Jesus is and where this story's headed, Luke's gospel account, a cross and an empty tomb, we have mercy and rest. We have access to those things in Jesus. 